0: Welcome to The Train Rush, the Stanford experiment of Train Game podcasts. Today, we're going to explore the facets of the human mind, in part by me abusing you unrelentingly for the next three or four hours. Brought to you today by Cray Taylor and Joe Reese.
1: Well, okay, if there's a single person listening to this podcast, please send help.
0: Well, in all reality, it's not just going to be abuse. There's going to be a thing we're talking about as well. There has to be a reason for the abuse. I could be the warden, you could be the prisoner. I could be the ticket master, you could be the ticketee, or whatever the correct term is. So our objective today is to discuss Capstone Games' Ride the Rails. It was designed by Harry Wu, stroke John Borer. Actually, John Borer. It's a game of multiple personalities. A negotiation game scored like a Euro game, dressed in the clothing of a train game, with the physical attributes of a dexterity game.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's that's very apt. I hate those tiny little trains.
0: Well, I will be pressing the F button on Tabletop Simulator unrelentingly if you place them in the wrong places, Joe. I'm going to make that absolutely <laughs> clear, and moaning non-stop whilst I do it.
1: It's not just on Tabletop Simulator. It's it's with with my hands. I can't. I literally can't pick those things up.
0: No one can be responsible for your giant, Savaloy size sausage fingers, Joe. I don't think Capstone <laughs> can take responsibility for that.
1: Look, I just long for the days when cube rails were cube rails and then we had cubes for cubes.
0: Welcome to the show, my friend.
1: Yeah, it's good to be
0: here. So I wanted to talk through like, the general macro level of this thing,
1: what sort of game it is, and then kind of... Should we first start by mentioning that Ride the Rails is the second instalment in Capstone's Iron Rail series.
0: Well, you've done it now, Joe, so I can't (laughs) stop you. I guess it's been mentioned. Um, I guess then, then Joe, should we mention it's also been drawn by Ian O'Toole?
1: No. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let's not bother. Okay. If you're familiar with um, Irish Gauge, then this follows on with a very similar presentation and component Mm -hmm. quality. Sure. I mean,
0: the hexes are smaller, and if you were to take the green slider on a graphic designs package and dialed it back about 30%, you're imagining the right thing.
1: And if you increase the board size by around 250% or something like that.
0: I will admit my first impression of this when I unfolded it um, was there's there's more board. Oh my God, there's another leaf. Oh my (laughs) God, there's another leaf. This thing is a table beast for a cube browse game. I think it's something like an eightfold board.
1: The map is almost one-to-one scale with the, the United States itself, Craig.
0: Which is a nice bit of fun. In the box, you will notice an absence of paper money. You'll notice an absence of shares. In fact, all you have in the box is the board, some markers for the various companies and players, some trains and some passengers. That's it.
1: Oh, well, and one sheet of rules, which I've laminated myself. I just think a repeated use that the one sheet of rules may get torn at some point.
0: Or if you're a real preservationist, Joe, maybe you just print off a set of rules from the internet and then... Uh, and then frame the original exactly put them in the archive put them in your metal safe for posterity (laughs) of course (laughs) so we've opened up this thing it's got some components there's an absence of shares there's an absence of money so what does that imply joe
1: um that implies that this game completely foregoes any kind of financial side to the train game genre
0: indeed i would say it's not an economic game at all it's not an economic game it's a it's a VP race. The VPs might be named money, but in reality, they're VPs. Although it does quite nicely, absentia the um, shares having a price or appreciation or a face value or anything of that sort, this uses the coast-to-coast rails mechanism of trains as shares and shares as trains.
1: You mentioned coast-to-coast. People may not be so familiar with that. That's...
0: Well, that's on them, Joe.
1: <laughs> go on, Joe, go on. That's Scott Peterson's, I think first design, or at least first published design, which uses cubes to represent both shares in the company and also the track that that company has to lay. This will also be a familiar aspect of Paris Connection, which was released a year later.
0: So the shares in this are more about shared incentive tracking.
1: They represent the interest that you have in a particular company, and the shared interest around the table. And further round, uh the engineering potential uh, for the company too.
0: Okay, let's, let's talk through the game and how it actually flows, I guess, Joe. So this will be like an express teach, except I won't teach any minuté. In a game of Ride the Rails, players are playing to have the most victory points, sorry, money, by the end of six rounds. Six rounds go thusly. There are three phases to a round. In the first phase, every player will pick up a share. As the game goes on, there will be more and more companies available to start. Initially, there's only two. Each round, bar the last round, adds an additional company. And the players can pick a share from any company that has shares, stroke, trains left to pick up.
1: And it's as simple as picking up that component there's no money involved no transactions no finances
0: no vp penalty
1: yeah you you get your choice of which company you are most interested in
0: that will go until everybody has picked a share, and then we go on to phase b which is probably the meat of the game in terms of the time spent or more to point the time spent making decisions in phase b every player may lay x number of trains x varying by player count for any companies they have a share in so at the start of the game you're only going to be able to lay trains on behalf of one company in turn two depending what you've picked up you may be able to lay on behalf of two companies so on and so forth although in all reality with players potentially doubling down on their prior investments they may not have the ability to lay trains for all companies the trains laid can be a mix it's unlike irish gauge where you take the lay train action and it's for one company only With this, you can split your build points between companies. There's some details about where companies start and whatnot, but I don't think they're super relevant until we get to the analysis stage. After everybody's done that, we ride the rails. So phase C of each round on the existing networks that have been built up as part of Phase B, players will move passengers around it. Now, I should have mentioned this. Every city on the board has a passenger on it.
1: A single passenger and a finite number of passengers.
0: Indeed, and they're a one-and-done affair. Once somebody has moved them out of their home city somewhere else, then they go into the dustbin because they've died, because travelling on trains is very dangerous.
1: Well, you know that riding the rail was an 18th and 19th century uh, punishment in the United States, right? The offender was made to straddle a fence rail and was then paraded around town or taken to the city limits and dumped by the roadside. So I think it's perfectly thematic.
0: Indeed. The player who moves the passenger receives commission for each city they uh, move a passenger through. One point per oh, sorry, dollar for each city the passenger visits, including its starting city. And the lines they use to travel between the cities feed the companies concerned a dividend. Now let's just say that this is a very simple turn I move the passenger over six cities using five red links I would receive six commission and each share would pay five dollars as a result of me having made that movement each red share rather. So you receive more money when you're making your moves essentially so there's an incentive for you to make longer moves but there's an incentive for you to make longer moves using networks that you have an interest in. You are not forced to use a single network for your moves, however. It's not a case of the passenger will only move on the red network. As long as there's kind of like a baton exchange in a city, or a place where two companies are present, you can then switch between networks and do half the journey on red, half the journey on blue then maybe finish off on a little bit of yellow. You also don't have to move the passenger over your networks at all if the things you're invested in are puny networks and you'd rather pick up a big commission than nothing at all. There's quite a few permutations in passenger movement here that aren't immediately apparent on first play. Once we've done this entire merry dance six times, we see who has the most victory points and a person with the most victory points will be the winner. Ties are possible. That's the quick version of the rules.
1: Yeah, effectively, just summing that up. So you pick a share in a company, you choose which company you're going to build for, maybe one or two companies, depending if you want to split that allowance. And then C, you're going to move a passenger and you must move a passenger, um, if a passenger's available, down a line to a a city of your choice.
0: Indeed. And actually, that's a very good point. A is a must phase, picking a share. B is a may phase. You could lay no trains at all. C is a must
1: phase. Where shall we go now, Joe? Where shall we ride? Should we go through the game in order? Should we go through the A, B, and C phase to kind of give some structure to this conversation? But because obviously these mechanisms are intertwined, we may go back and forth a little bit. So
0: let's start with phase A of each term picking a share. So shares are picked in. essentially in reverse turn order. At the start of the game, that's arbitrary. It's randomly assigned the turn order. But from turn two onwards, turn order will be least money to most money. So the person picking the first share will be the person with the most money. This is important for our deep analysis.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the one thing which is the most prevalent, most important mechanism in this entire game is the way that turn order works and how the turn order changes throughout the game and potentially how you're able to manipulate that turn order to get exactly what you want in the next stock round or the next rail building round or the next passenger moving round.
0: Sounds like power grid bar the passengers and the rails and the everything else.
1: Yep, and uh, we do not need coal to power our steam engines today.
0: Indeed, electric dreams. So. I agree the turn order is absolutely pivotal in this the principle of balance it seems to me is that the player who's in the lead is theoretically disadvantaged by having to pick the first share okay in the first round it's a caricature because red and blue which are the the first two companies that come into the game they can both start in exactly the same places they are functionally identical by the paint on the trains so player one for share round, in round one, has literally no decision. You could, you should just assign them a red train as part of setup as far as I'm concerned. This kind of thing, that lack of agency, but to a lesser extent, is repeated in future rounds. We'll go into why. I'm going to call it a lack of agency. Joe may be kinder. The second player then gets to pick a share. Do they pick the same share as the first player and therefore invest in a network that they know will have at least two n build points n being the amount of build points allocated to a player or did I start the alternative company and give the third player a choice
1: yeah this this is a the dilemma that haunts the the stock round it is, it's a question that's asked repeatedly throughout this game when is it right to start a company and will the player who's next in turn order follow your lead or follow a different path If you're looking ahead and thinking about those build points, can you afford the possibility of going it alone, knowing that more build points can, assuming that they're used constructively, equal more links made and more passengers delivered, potentially, and more dollars in the dividend payout? The first turn feels easier, but I think as the flow chance of decisions are mapped out, it just becomes more and more difficult. So, let's say then, I, I'm the first player, I, I pick red, okay? Mm-hmm. What do you do? What do you do as second player? I absolutely pick red because it's
0: the least risk. Worst case scenario, we've got 2n build points between us. If I pick blue, I could be left with 1n build points against a 4n build points alliance, assuming a 5-player game.
1: Yes, so, um, just to make it clear, the first player picks red, If second player, you, Craig, picks blue, there is the chance then that third, fourth, and fifth player, if you're playing a five-player game, don't invest in your railroad. They just go along with the first player, and they're leaving you high and dry, essentially. Although I do have some thoughts about that.
0: Well, you know this is a place for thoughts, right, Joe? It's going to be a very stale podcast if you keep your thoughts to yourself.
1: (laughs) All right, okay. Assuming this is a five-player game, do you think that they're left with the slim advantage that second to purchase will be the fourth to build? So potentially we'll be able to watch the development of the other networks and build to their sole advantage from what they've observed.
0: I think it's pre on the fact that Red builds in a way that allows Blue to connect. Okay, And that's not even a guarantee it can be totally possible for the red players to build in such a way that the fourth player to build in this scenario can't hook into the red network. And if the other players have decided to sell that blue player a dummy anyway, they're not going to allow him to connect into the network for delivery. They've done it with the intent of messing him up. Now, I think maybe this exposes an issue with how people approach the game initially. Okay? I wonder if that second player who is you know in our theory is going to start the blue network should they not be talking to the other players
1: i think almost definitely
0: but do you think people on their first play do or do you think they approach it in the kind of normal i say normal the normal for our group style of yep you've made a move now i made a move let's keep this snappy
1: yes i think well it's in my nature to take a move and and see what the results are. This is my first game. I don't know. I'll choose that. We'll see how it happens. For my second and third play, I can adjust from what I've learned.
0: Sure. And then, okay, let's just say we've talked and we've all agreed we're going to pick Blue to sell the Player One a dummy. So he's alone on the red network and he's mm. going to be building last. So good luck to him, right? How does that make Player One feel?
1: It could It could make them feel completely betrayed for absolutely no reason on the first turn.
0: Yeah, their disadvantage coming out of the first turn feels arbitrary. That's my concern. Not that this happens on first play. What I tend to find is the reverse happens. Specifically, that a player will see that everybody else has gone red and go, well, I'll go blue then. They perceive that they might be picking up an advantage. I'm alone on blue. I'll make more money somehow. Mm. Whereas actually, they're opting into a disadvantage then when they see that pan out in turn one how much of a wet blanket they've thrown on their own back they just sit there fuming for the next hour
1: okay uh, two points here um which i think really pushes into the the psychology that lives within this game you're asking two things how does a player feel when they're betrayed by the other players and how does a player feel when they perceive they are betrayed by the game system itself and, well, even worse if they feel it's both, right? And I think this utterly depends on the player at the table, their personal experience and their gaming experiences as well. But like where does their mind rest when it comes to trust and betrayal? Uh, what emotions does that evoke? But even in the kind of artificial spaces, such as a, an hour-long board game, right? Now, I can see the possibility for players... Just to play once and not return to it, either that, or they're motivated to change the situation and work really hard at pulling themselves back, which we've seen in our games that that's possible you you can pull yourself back to a degree
0: I think it's more possible depending on player count and the balance of the alliances, but yes,
1: yes, yeah, okay I yeah, I agree with that. another thing I was thinking of a uh, I guess a third question is, will betrayal realistically occur on the first action of the first round? Now, I can see the logic behind it. Why not destroy one-fifth of the competition in one fell swoop? But to me, it almost feels like murder without a motive. Like, I can begin to understand if there's a shared history between the players... You know, a a meta that crosses over several plays or possibly from game to game. But personally, I tend to approach each game from a position of a clean slate, right? And without without malice. Even if I can logically see the advantage of chopping another player's ankles off before even the whistle has blown. It just doesn't seem like the most comfortable thing to do. So personally, I, I... I just can't see that particular event occurring uh, that early in the game that often. Anyway, so we've got the first player, they're choosing red. Second player, there is a decision, but we're suggesting the safest idea is to go red as well. Sure. Okay, we're just, it's kind of a, a mind game. Mm-hmm. This mind game happens every single round, right? Sure. Player three theoretically
0: in our conversation could say hey let's those two guys have committed to that we're going to get the earlier builds let's all do blue okay
1: yeah and I think that needs to be said that needs to be discussed or it could be that the third player chooses blue and then the rest just choose red I think it's the third player's responsibility for their own survival in this game to say actually openly say to the other players around the table who've still not yet picked a share, look, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I want to do. This will work really well if you follow me and we all do the same. Sure. And then let's say that
0: player four complies with the request and they pick blue as well, for argument's sake, okay? Yeah, sure. Player five is then in this interesting position where they can decide which alliance wins. Well, I say wins, not wins the game overall, but wins out on this turn.
1: Who will have the majority of rail building power who potentially get a stronger network in the first round.
0: And they also decide where the company they ally with starts in terms of starting position. And by choosing where that network starts, they also deny the start position for the other alliance. Because the initial builds... They're actually on the east coast on the map. The, those cities can only hold one train each. So they not only do they decide where this one starts, they block the position for the other alliance, which provides the kind of the big macro level opening moves.
1: Yes. From where you start is going to determine how many cities you can reach, how many links you can make, how much income's gonna come rolling in.
0: Now, turn two, depending on how many trains are laid and um, how many uh, shares were picked up in the relative companies there may be some mandatory forking because remember we mentioned at the start of the show that trains are shares and shares are trains well there's only 27 in each company which means that actually whoever made the most money in the first round is, is going to have the first pick of shares there might not be that many red stroke blue shares left alternatively they could start the new company the orange company Maybe they see there's more opportunity in that, but in all likelihood, let's go. Let's carry this through. The, the the orders have readjusted based on who's earned the most money, and this is the most money person picking first. They could start the orange company, but if they start it alone, it's not going to reach very far, and it's going to be a company that is. It's going to be a share stroke company that's not going to earn them very much money. Okay, if they start it alone. They're in the lead, so there's very little incentive for other players to cooperate with them. So I feel player one again has less agency. They have to pick an established share. I mean, maybe have two's too strong, Joe.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: If there's a lack of passengers on the network, and then maybe they need to pick a you know a non-established share to feed a passenger through the network. But turn two, I don't feel like they have a whole heap of choice.
1: It's it's interesting because I think it would depend completely on the play and how they feel at that moment, do they really want the challenge of establishing the newly formed Orange Company? If looking at optimal moves, then more experienced players will probably sway towards picking up the share in the already established company if they feel that it provides a good tail end to the route, uh, which will be used throughout the rest of the game.
0: Indeed, and there's plenty of Orange later to pick up, should the... uh opportunity presents that you know, other people start orange and it's a good company.
1: Or do they go blue?
0: Maybe, depends on... If the blue's the weaker of the two alliances, then I would see they pick red. I guess the point I'm making here is, right, that these heuristics are crude in so much as they're not universally correct, but they're often correct. And using them an, as an often correct heuristic, stroke optimization, picking the safe share for the first player is what you're going to do eight times out of ten, without some compelling reason on the board to make you do otherwise.
1: Um, I think I generally agree with that. And there are circumstances, if that first round turned out completely differently, what if everyone went for red? Well, I
0: was just going to say, there's a, there's a big bucket of it depends, right? Because that second red share is good if there are passengers left on the network, because everybody has been constructive with their initial rail builds. If, however... The players who think they are going to be doing worse i e less likely to have access to the second red share think, well, well I'm not going to get a second red share, so I don't want red to be too good or to have too many passengers if they've laid their rails destructively, then maybe you just pick up the blue share because okay, red's got a good route, but it's not got access to passengers right now i I think this game exposed itself to me when. We started to realise that you should only lay constructive rail if you are the one who stands to benefit from it somehow. When we all entered this game somewhat naively, with connect as many cities as possible—that's the name of the game. Race across the map. I'm hooked. I hooked in a bajillionty passengers this turn. That's all well and good, but if you're not the per- if you're giving everybody access to passengers all the time, and the winners just keep winning, and they're If they've doubled down on long networks you know early networks then they just carry on getting big commission
1: yeah and this is the kind of control that you start to acquire when you you go through these multiple plays you start to consider what shares are left in the company while you're building track and how many of the passages are available on the on the board when the turn order adjusts Will you have a passenger to pull through that network or not?
0: Totally. Like the game we played last night, Joe, where although it didn't do enough to pull last player to the win, it did enough to pull last player up to the pack. Bear in mind, they were about 20 points adrift or something
1: silly like that. And the pack didn't get to move a single passenger.
0: (laughs) Indeed. So the the person who was in last place, i.e. first to move passengers, moved their passenger. That was it. That's the game. Everybody gets paid their dividends, but the player who moved the passenger got their commission and they made sure to bias its movements over networks they had shares in. Bob your dad's brother, they didn't lose by such an embarrassing amount. I, th- I think that's actually something that, having played this a lot of times, made me appreciate the design a lot more, that if you play nasty, this game gets significantly more interesting.
1: Okay, so let me ask you a few questions now. Sure. So we've got a game which has five different railroads this is a broad question let's see let's discuss it is it better to diversify is it better to double down on a company when do you diversify when do you double down triple down on a company okay i can answer
0: that what i will say is i will just offer a caveat emptor i'm not claiming to be an authority (laughs) this is just me exposing my heuristics of how i play right now they as I said previously, they're probably far from perfect. So as the player who's in the lead and picking the first share, I will typically pick a second share in an existing company so I can't be sold a dummy. Now, in terms of diversifying, diversifying is great when it gives you options on laying track destructively. That's something I saw in the last game, where actually that last player that I was talking about who got to kill the board... He killed the board by picking a single share in a company he otherwise had no interest in. So diversifying can be a tool if it allows you to lay bad rail. I mean, diversifying is good if you know that other players are going to be using that network. Where diversifying is bad, I think broadly, is it exposes you. If you're starting a network and you don't see a shared incentive for other people to get on board, then you'll just get thrown down the hole. Now, that incentive could be to try and deal with the lead player it could be to add more passengers to the network because we all need more deliveries it could be the printed build bonuses on the board that will come to join track lane that give a one-time award to people who we'll build into various cities the, the the incentives
1: are there's a few there hmm can i add something about long-term projections of the company in one game i used three out of my six total choices to triple down on the yellow company it was a four-player game I was near to last place. No one had invested at all in the yellow company. But because I managed to create a loop that included lots of passengers and cities, it incentivized everyone else to use the route. And I ended up making a, a huge jump forward in the final two rounds. Because those last two rounds, the payouts can be huge.
0: I think there's a lens here. If you triple down on something that's a spinal route through the board where everybody's going to be hopping through it, fair enough. If you triple down on a spur where people can choose to run down it or not, maybe they run down an alternative spur instead, you've disincentivized them ever using that spur.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that would be an absolute disaster. And I've seen it happen. I've seen, I've seen players build a branch line, which is a, a one-way route, and no one wants to go down that route because there are longer pathways across the map. In fact, I think, to be honest
0: with you, that's probably the difference between winners and losers in this game, are the people who double down on profitable networks. The ability to identify the profitable network and double down in it, as opposed to safe striping. I think you'd be very hard pushed to win with one share in every company, for argument's sake.
1: Right. It's about foreseeing that potential, but also managing the railroad effectively too. And and that might involve some negotiation with other players and influencing their actions and when you're choosing that share it's all about evaluating what position you'll be in in the coming phases and planning ahead for uh, the b the rail building and c the passenger moving in advance
0: and i think that's probably an issue for first-time players of this right if I've, I think there's a natural kind of tendency to try and rip through it. We're all just picking a share, pick a share, pick a share. This should be done in a few seconds. Then you probably aren't giving it sufficient analysis to get the most out of the game, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think that actually everybody should take a beat to think through those things. And the problem is, until you've played a few games and seen how... Your turn order affects your position in the various phases of the game, be it delivering passengers, be it laying rail, be it choking companies out by laying their last trains in bad places. You can't make that analysis.
1: No, you can't. But it is a quick enough game that you might actually say, come on, let's play again. Sure. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. What do you think about this idea? If there's fast investment in a company, you have a network that's built faster. But if there's slow investment, you have a network that's built more cleverly. What do you think of that as a, as a as a theory in how this game plays out?
0: You see, if a network's built faster, it's built more speculatively, right? So it's not necessarily about it's built less intelligently. It's that the information isn't there. You're having to take a punt and go, okay, well, we'll build into Chicago, for argument's sake, using the red company as the exemplar of this. We're going to build straight into Chicago and around these hops. And independently, this is a good network, pretty much whatever happens. If a network's built more slowly, then you've got the information there. The other established networks are there for you to thread into or to bypass or to ignore. It's not so much intelligently. It's the fact that you can see what's already happened, right? You've got the benefit of more information. The challenge is, can you convert that intelligence, for want of a better term, into points? Because that red network that's built quickly in our example will likely have been paying significant yields, springing players towards the front, you know, the ones that are invested in it for most of the game. Maybe towards the end of the game, there's some bypasses and some choices around avoiding the red network and using some challenger network instead. Fine. But I don't think it's a guarantee that you can convert that slow build into enough points to compete with that big initial network. I mean, there's, you know, as throughout the rest of this episode, You've got to take the old big paintbrush, dip it in the paint pot of it depends, slather it all over it. It (laughs) depends, it depends, it depends. But just as a very crude heuristic, I want the fast network that's established quickly.
1: I guess you could, as a player, have a combination of both, can't you? You invest in a network which will hopefully pay out for the rest of the game, but also have your hand in manipulating another railroad to... Uh, shape the network, the overall network.
0: Yes, and I think that's the value of a single share in something,
1: right? Uh, Before moving on, I just want to return to something, because it seems to me that you are somewhat bothered by the richest player's lack of agency, as you put it. And I agree with you that there is most of the time there might be a a safe option, uh, which you could interpret to be the only option for the first player in that stock round. But As you work your way down the player order, the choices become more and more diverse and arguably more interesting but if you're taking what you believe to be true then those interesting moments then won't be divided between all the players equally over the course of the game so how much does that bother you about the design it bothers me
0: in so much as i think it leads to a poor first impression okay the leader is going to have a game where they don't see any options bar the safe one. Okay, I've got to pick an established network because anything else is setting myself up for a pratfall, to be abused. You know, if I start a weak network by myself, it's essentially a dead share. In a beginner's game, the other players won't know how to manage that. How do I manage the player picking an established share? Or they won't know how to manage it in the sense they go, okay, man, well, we need to actually start an alternative network and explode out and leave... Craig out of that value. The early games, it's not a lot of fun for the winner and the losers, for want of a better term, can't necessarily work out what their options are for pulling the winner back. Especially in a table that's not talking. However, once players start realising some of the more um, advanced features such as uh, passenger choke, which should theoretically significantly Punish the player who's presently in the lead. Okay. Or they work out how to poison networks by uh, using their priority to lay track. You know, so, say, say, a few remaining trains somewhere really stupid. So there is a lack of passengers for everybody, bar the lead player themselves, say. Then it becomes more interesting because you should have a more even texture or distribution, for want of a better term, of players sometimes being at the front sometimes being at the back i've got agency now i've got less and so on and so forth let's let's move on to phase b i'd argue one of the more nuanced part of the game the lane the track so all the companies in the game have potentially different starting locations available to open at different set rounds you begin with the red and blue companies which can open in round one and they can establish themselves in particular east coast cities in round two, the orange company comes into effect, which can start in the same east coast cities, but also Chicago. And then the yellow company, which can pop up in Chicago or there's abouts. There's some restrictions around that. The purple company starts in the round after that, which uh, it can start on the west coast. And finally, the black company can start in any city on the map. So far, Chicago tends to act as a hub for the networks in the games we've played so far, partly because the player is incentivized to build into Chicago via the means of a princely $2 bribe.
1: Oh, just imagine it. What can you do with those $2 in your pocket?
0: Well, you can keep them as victory points because, uh, yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, the varying start positions are actually quite fascinating, I think. And uh, it unfolds the n- numerous network building Decisions to the player. And I think yellow is probably the standout on the USA map anyway, allowing you to start not only in Chicago, uh, like you said, but the three most western cities that have already been built in by other railroads, which can vary from game to game uh, quite considerably, actually.
0: Indeed. And there's a little finagling you can do here. So we talked about laying a mix of trains. You could build slightly. West with the red company, for argument's sake, or the blue company, whatever, to provide yellow with what you perceive to be a better starting location.
1: And then the purple company, that's a potential candidate for linking east to west for the uh, transcontinental build bonus. And then black, uh, which doesn't float until really late in the game, is more of a flexible tool, I think, to create links and diversions between already established networks
0: there are restrictions the main one being that only two railroads can occupy a single hex however there's an exception to that as there are in all things the most notable exception being that chicago can contain all of the companies so there's a natural gravitation for that being a hub for the game on the basis that every company can be present there
1: which actually lends the game some historical accuracy because Chicago was the key interchange when transporting goods and passengers from both sides of the country by rail and actually in its prime it had six railroad stations all in a circuit or a loop around its city center
0: so you're telling me that it's as important to america as reading is to england that's that's something else
1: it is and and reading is equal in beauty isn't it to chicago
0: absolutely you, you you couldn't uh you heard it here first
1: <laughs> right, so in terms of the track that
0: that's the general like flow of it, I guess, in the restrictions and the companies that come on as we just talking to the variability of the thing, orange will typically start in Chicago, but could start on one of the cities on the east, red blue where they start, that can vary game to game. We talk to the inherent variability of where yellow can start. There's so many points of variance as to where these companies can start that, that we've seen quite significantly different maps each play. Albeit red and blue typically start with similar formations. Those openings seem somewhat more fixed.
1: One tends to head north, one tends to head
0: south. But beyond that, there has been quite big degrees of variance of where orange and yellow build.
1: You make one change to where one railroad ends and that will impact the decision for every single player placing track from that point onwards. And not just placing track, right? I mean, I just
0: want to be clear here. Yes, it impacts that, but it also impacts the share decision. Like we alluded to earlier, if the players collude to make the red network not very good because they don't think they're going to be picking up the next share, that has a massive impact on the entire game rippling there on in terms of which shares you pick and if the, they also make the network a bit rubbish and not connected to enough cities for all passengers to move trains that has an impact i don't think that's possible round one because i think there's too many passengers on the board for you to force that to force a <clears> choke <throat> and i think the east coast is quite dense There are gaps between cities in the east coast where the game starts are quite tight, quite realistic, I guess, in terms of population density. So you'd be hard pushed to have people having no deliveries around one, you know, or to control the, who has deliveries around one. But it's certainly a consideration from about round two onwards, or or can be.
1: So step for a second, Craig, into the mind of a player. They're about to place their first station on the board. What what are you thinking? What's going through your head in terms of the direction of your building?
0: Okay, if I'm first player and I am thereby probably going to get the last passenger, I want to make sure that I'm going to have a- a- there's going to be at least five passengers on the board, so I can move one. I'm okay being behind. I accept the fact that I'm probably going to be behind on revenue, but I want to keep that gap as tight as possible. So therefore, I'm probably building constructively, and I'm probably building constructively towards um, denser areas of the board, re- cities and passengers. I'm also thinking if i lay few enough trains maybe i only lay three trains and that might leave another share for me i know actually however in the five player it doesn't that leaves the third player an option on a share it's not going to leave it for me so then i vacillate back towards the fort well solid i might as well lay as many trains as possible then and give as few people as possible the option on the second share but my primary thing is make sure there's a passenger for me to deliver
1: Yes, because without a passenger, there is no choice about the amount of income you're going to receive.
0: Indeed, that, that, I have no decision there, which is bad. I'm also thinking about building in a place I don't want the other network to pop up.
1: Do you think that uh, there's enough tactical and strategic opportunities for blocking in this game? I, I ask that because I've only seen it used uh, a little. I've seen the Red Company routing to effectively make dud start locations for blue, like pushing it towards another part of the board, and I've seen a company charge into a city and block another player receiving the higher transcontinental bonus value, a bonus that player so desperately needed uh, to be in a chance of winning. But in terms of uh, restricting the direction of a railroad, it's do you think there's much space to make it a strategic consideration or do these moments come only about as tactical opportunities?
0: There's a little bit of space. I'll give you an example. So let's just say round one, the red network builds around the northeast of the board and ends up in Pittsburgh. Okay. Now, if you can, the blue network theoretically could try and reach Pittsburgh. Okay. i am probably saying that wrong. It's probably Pittsburgh, but anywho. In round two, I could start the orange company, lay its trains into Pittsburgh, albeit with all these things are predilicated to the fact that the the priority is right and that I can get help from someone else because of the lay range. In a lower player count, then I may be able to do some of this stuff single handedly. But I could lay the orange track into Pittsburgh, stopping blue from hooking into the big network at a convenient location. So I do think there's room for blocking. I don't think it's always there, but when the opportunity presents, it can be destructive. It feels more opportunistic and tactical because there's so much it depends. Have I got the priority on the player that is going to be making that connection? Are they going to block me or am I going to block them?
1: Sure. And also I suppose is it worth it? Um, Am I going to get as much out of this blocking as I am denying something from someone else? Is the balance in my favour when I could be building somewhere constructively getting that passenger, getting uh, one of the bonuses on the board. Well, it depends if you feel
0: you're going to benefit from the bypass because by building that second link into Pittsburgh, then you're obviously giving people an alternative option to ferry passengers over. Mm. Versus, do I need more passengers right now or do I want to try and reach for a bonus? Again, this whole thing is filled with buckets of It Depends.
1: Yeah, and the It Depends uh, all the way through this game is completely dependent Dependent, (laughs) depending, dependent on what the other players have done. One small move will ripple out throughout the entire game.
0: And I think your ability to appreciate this game will in part be determined by how interested you are in unpacking those
1: ripples. So we've been talking about destructive track. Uh, Reasons to employ such a tool include laying wasted rail to reduce the number of shares. It might be to make a connection impossible. And it might be to prevent another player from reaching a build bonus on the board. And these bonuses are another feature that manipulate the players into sending ripples of consequence throughout the game. They provide five whole dollars to the person who builds into them. So you might want to steer those little locomotives away from those bonuses so it's not possible for somebody to take that easy money. And they're dotted across the map. They've got Kansas City, Denver, Dallas, Minneapolis. I think I'm pronouncing all of those correctly, you know, uh, unlike uh, Craig's. Unlike those uh,
0: Americans that can't pronounce them. Go on.
1: <laughs> I think we need someone uh, telling us how to pronounce uh, Pittsburgh <laughs> correctly. Maybe we should uh, put out a call on Twitter for Craig's Lessons in enunciation. Pittsburgh. 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 Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Lots and lots of letters, lots and lots of syllables. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Anyway, the focus of my attention now is not Pittsburgh, but Chicago. Uh, possibly the most interesting hex on the entire map. We mentioned before that uh, the hexes have a limit of two, well, Chicago doesn't have that. So every company can build towards Chicago and get into Chicago. What's more, there is that $2 bonus that can be awarded multiple times to multiple players, whoever builds the new railroad entering it. Now, I don't think that building into Chicago is worth it for that bonus alone.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you said that. It's a red herring, right? If you are picking a share just so you can pick up that bonus, unless that share is working for you, either in a short position or a long position, in some other significant way, you should be reappraising whether you are indeed going to pick said share. You want to pick a strong share first and foremost and pick up that bonus as a secondary aspect.
1: Now let me ask you this, Craig. What would you choose as your favourite dessert or sweet snack? Um, well well if you Joe, had to make a choice, Craig.
0: If I had to make a choice, Joe, it is a Raisin Danish pastry.
1: And that's exactly what Chicago is. It is the raisin Danish pastry of Ride the Rails. John Bora has has given us this Danish pastry. And whether intentional or not, it plays with the emotional part of your brain, okay?
0: Go on. I'm interested in where you're going to take this, Joe.
1: We can all reason. We can all decide whether something is good for us or bad for us. We can all make long-term decisions about our future. But when in proximity to a reward, when in proximity to a Danish pastry, (laughs) the emotional parts of your brain tend to win over the abstract reasoning. Okay? You, you will tend to snap up that reward immediately just because it's there, right? And I think that mm. drives a lot of choices in this game. There's that $2. It's just, it's just sitting there, Craig. You could take it now. It's $2 now. And I think that the Chicago Hex is a clever part of the design, a design which manipulates players into creating an interchange in the networks which will have the knock-on effect of giving players more choices about which way to move their passengers and more agency over which railroads will pay out. Well, this ties
0: itself to an observation form about one of the playtesters, right? Um, by playtesters, I mean in our group, not in the official playtest group. Are those bonuses on the board to provide players an extra opportunity to manipulate their position in the turn order that they otherwise know they're not going to be able to get from passengers. Because you'll notice that most of those awards on the board are towards the east side of the board, or certainly in the middle of the board. They start drying up when you get west because it's the big payoff. It's the one last job when you start approaching the west. It's the east-west bonus for winning stroke losing the game. Early on, they're little nuanced payouts, like two and five, that could totally be the difference between you being first or last to pick a share.
1: And I've done that. I've taken a bonus. I've considered the bump in income it's given me, and adjusted the length of the passenger journey according to the turn order position I want to try and achieve in the next round.
0: And that's more significant in my mind than the $2 or the $5, inverted commas, you can't spend. But maybe I start that company to pick up the $5 bonus in Kansas City because, on top of the passengers I already hope to move, that could be the difference. Sure.
1: And making that decision is an economic tightrope that ties into psychological research that suggests that most people, given the choice between $5 now or $6 tomorrow, will choose the immediate payout. But interestingly, if given a choice between $5 in a year's time or in a year plus one day, they'll choose the latter. And that's what that single hex on the whole map reminds me of. It's asking whether we take the Danish pastry now or plan for the long term health of the company.
0: Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I don't think I have anything to say in response to that actually.
1: uh, I've got nothing to say about my uh, Danish pastry theory.
0: I think it's bang on in so much as it does put players in the position that they might make bad decisions for themselves longer term because they see that little green banner, Mm. whereas actually they should be considering the value of that little green banner versus the value of the share they might otherwise pick up.
1: Yes, yeah, agreed.
0: Something I thought actually about deferral gratification, it's more of a wider point. I found that my playing 18xx elevated tremendously when I learnt to balance the uh, payoff now and you know, the investment I can make with the money from in payoff now versus the potential of something later. But I found that when I, my play reduced to one-dimensional kind of, oh, I can grab money now, I can grab money now, I can grab money now, I actually went for a period of getting worse at 18xx and actually games generally. So that learning to defer gratification and seeing that this thing now costs me an opportunity that's worth far, far more later can apply to more than just this.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why I really enjoy CubeRow Real games. They take these larger concepts and really boil them down to single questions. Yeah, and I also think that Probably John Bora added those bonuses to tie into a kind of historical reflection of where the values were in these cities at that, that time. But it has the game effect, doesn't it, of drawing players into making mistakes, also holding players back because they don't want other players to make those gains on them. I think they are subtle well-positioned game elements that can really shape the psychology of the game
0: sure and the other bonus that we mentioned earlier we might as well mention now
1: the transcontinental bonus
0: indeed if at any point in the east coast is ever connected to the west coast by any combination of rail networks then a one-time bonus will be awarded to the player who made said connection and it's going to be $8 if they connect on the plains, or $12 if they connect in a city hex. That's quite a significant bonus, and what I tend to find was as players got cagier, sharper, more with it, that transcontinental bonus was more dream than a reality.
1: $12. Are you just going to hand that to a player? You want to prevent it as much as possible. Is anyone going to build West... With the knowledge that someone could spring up purple or black and make that connection in later rounds. It's probably not worth the risk, do you think?
0: The problem here is there are so many passengers, north and south, Mm. that you don't really need. The drive to go to the west coast is pretty darn minimal. There's loads of Cheyenne, Rapid City, El Paso. Corpus Christi, there's loads of passengers on this board to go around for even the highest player count game that I would rather play the, oh, well, we don't connect to the West Coast game. I'll try and make sure I'm not choked out of passengers
1: rather than award somebody $12. Even if there's an alliance of two versus three and the two players have similar interests, they might rush the yellow company across the board and, and think they'll quickly open up the purple company to connect them. But there's that internal tension within the alliance who will receive the bonus and that should put the brakes on that.
0: I feel like that when you have novice players, they have this imperative to make the bonus. Okay. Often setting up the bonus for somebody else. They're very rarely the benefactor of that bonus. And the reason being that when you've played this a few times and the scores start to tighten up, Rather than being stretched over, you know, the entire board, that twelve dollars is a game-winning amount of money from any position. You look, look how tight. I mean, sorry, I appreciate we're sort of foreshadowing here, but when we've been mocking out perfect games or when we've been playing games with more experienced players at a table, the actual final rankings between the players who are in it, there might be one person who's cut adrift, but the difference between the players who are in it. It's way less than $12. More often than not, it's been decided by somebody picking up a $5 bonus that maybe they shouldn't have. So I'm not going to risk it. If I am not guaranteed to get that $12, I'm not going to risk remotely enabling it.
1: So I mean, in my notes, about how easy is it to manoeuvre for it?
0: I don't think it is. I, I, just, I just don't think it is. I think, to a certain extent, if you get awarded that, it's semi arbitrary The only way I could see that working is if, if a player was so far adrift at the back... Versus a player who is somewhat ahead of them at the front says, "Okay, right, fine. I'm going to enable that last player to pick up the twelve-dollar bonus because they're still last or they're still not ahead of me because I really need the passengers on the network."
1: Hmm. In fact, actually, let's say we're building north with orange across the top, picking one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight passengers. By the end of the game, it could be that everyone has starved all the passengers from elsewhere on the network that people are not drawing those passengers down your long route which goes from west all the way to Chicago. There is chance there for a late game swing isn't there where people have to move a passenger and so they're drawing it down that one line.
0: There's this theoretical thing where you could just move the passenger one hop but that requires another type of collusion. So let's just say we don't want to bring that last player into it and I say okay. I'm going to move the passenger one hop. I'm going to give them one, one dividend and I'm going to receive one commission onto you, player two, who's also slightly in the game. Well, player two instantly betrays and moves the longest passenger they can, the longest distance, because they benefit at the um, expense of player one who only did a short run, launching them further ahead. So this is the thing. This is I know we're going to phase C here, but I think it's kind of in, intertwined. I don't think you really have an option about doing a short run to deny dividends to other people. I think you have to go on a long run on the basis that the first player has to because they're just too open to betrayal. Okay, I'll do a short run if everybody else promises not to do long runs. And then they get absolutely (laughs) stuffed when everybody else does long runs. So you have to pre-betray in terms of game theory stuff. Okay, yep, I betray. Right Now, you have some choice over which legs you use you know, okay, I'm going to run it over networks that I have more shares in versus a fork that I don't have shares in. Fine. But your actual choice of do I do a long run versus a short run? I think it's a false choice.
1: I think there's a bit more nuance in in choosing the length of the run um, throughout the game. It depends where you want to end up in the phase A of the next round. There might be times where you deliberately run a shorter run. It could be fairly medium in length, but shorter than the other players. So that your last choose a share, you can watch what other people invest in before you make your final decision. You can watch the other players negotiate. You can listen to what other people are saying. You should join me with this railroad. We'll do this, we'll do that. And then you can make that final decision. So there are moments in the game where you don't necessarily want to run the longest passenger route. Is this
0: theory crafting? Is this the equivalent of me saying to you, Joe, if I flap my arms hard enough in the right way, I can fly. You know, in theory, it can happen, but in practice, it can't. Because the reason I say this is beyond the first couple of turns, for you to optimise your run and calculate the amount of dividends everybody's going to receive off the runs to fettle it so you're in just the spot you want on that board you're going to be sitting there doing uh, like a five, six minute calculation.
1: Oh, oh sure, sure. That's and, and also, depending on where you are in the running order, you can't entirely predict where the next player will run their passenger and which networks and how the shares are going to pay out. Completely agreed. The only person who has that possibility to completely go through all the maths is the person who runs their passenger last because they've already got the data from the other players moving their passengers right
0: (laughs) even that calculation i would argue would be rude though and let me explain why.
1: oh no well let, let me come to my point because i i completely understand actually sitting there i think you you were about to say right and actually going through that calculating everyone's payout at the end um i think that is not in the uh, the spirit of the game, this is this is now long game. You kind of shoot at the hip. You you're making your decisions. You calculate as much as you can, but there is there is something to be said about having a go at manipulating that turn order. You're not going to be completely sure, but there is I think there is a choice there, and that choice is uh, one which runs on a, a feeling for the game rather than a calculation.
0: I respectfully somewhat disagree. Every time I've played with the crude heuristic of I'm just gonna run the passenger the longest I can to get the most commission so I pre-betray, I've always benefited at the expense of the other players trying to nuance. Just you know, the I'll keep grinding out points, I'll keep grinding out points, I'll keep grinding out points. That nuancing can be quite costly when you know okay i'll sacrifice a point or two here or there oh whoops i accidentally actually sacrificed five points when the score's ultimately even with perfect play can be quite tight i guess what i'm saying joe is i accept there's a possibility that i'm wrong and that's a cold it's a it's a slightly too cold read that's wrong but my initial feeling for it right now is that's where that's broadly where it is
1: i actually see what you're saying and i agree with 80% of what you said i think and this is what might challenge your idea, is as players get better at this game, they get better at negotiating in every single phase. And so you might continue to keep on running your longest routes, but I think there are ways the other players can manipulate things to put a stop to that. By working together, by colluding, by eventually ensuring that actually you're not going to get any passengers, Craig, now. And not only that, but one thing I've noticed in our closely matched games is that you definitely do not want to be the richest player in the penultimate round. Agreed. So if you can manipulate that... Because you
0: want a passenger, full stop.
1: And it's not difficult for the others to collude and leave you without one. So I think there is manipulation at certain points and I think it's important to keep in mind that running down the the, the passengers down those routes is manipulating that turn order and if you can try and control it in certain situations then you should definitely try to and try your best to get yourself in a position in which you're not going to be completely screwed
0: but then we're circling back to how practical is that when you're running it on an analog interface and you are try not to play it until the heat death of the sun to really <laughs> do that calculation and go, okay, I'm gonna move it six on yellow, two on red. Oh no, sorry, I mean three on red. Or oh, I think I can afford one on yellow.
1: You know, I Well I don't think I'm I'm not suggesting you play with accuracy. And so you have a look at the, the shared portfolios around the table. And you give it your best shot i think for an hour game i think oh oh i've got a challenge i've got to challenge that, to challenge <laughs> we'll that statement challenge you knew you, you knew i was going to challenge
0: that statement before when you wrote that down
1: surely <laughs> well well we can we can come and challenge me in a moment uh, let cool. me finish whatever i was trying to say sure where was i going craig and um, what was i saying you you can't stretch this game out to two hours right you you can't do it it's not in the spirit of the game i'd argue we're in a paradoxical
0: situation here joe Right? Because the box says an hour. Okay. And when we play this with no discussion whatsoever and try and rip through it, it takes about an hour. Okay. However, my feelings on it are this game gets elevated significantly if you have table talk and discussion and a degree of negotiation. Maybe not infinite back and forths a la the EU Brexit negotiations, but enough to kind of provide a canvas for alliances and betrayals. Oh, sure. But when you play it that way, you add circa 20 minutes, half hour to the the proceedings. So that, that brings it up to about an hour and a half broadly. And then if you add players doing some cigarette paper calculations of, okay, I think this will just get me in last place because I'm last player to move a train, so I have got the opportunity to calculate, so I should calculate. It becomes a two hour game. And then I ask you the question, okay i say two hour game let's call it out let's let's be kind and call it an hour and a half game do you feel like there's an hour and a half's worth of decisions in this game that leave you feeling tense or don't make themselves
1: i i wouldn't say necessarily that there are those 90 minutes of decisions although i can see the playtime running up to 90 minutes but i do see 90 minutes of options which i think is a slightly different thing because the options is talking through, negotiating, is having that back and forth around with the players around your table. Everyone is super interested in what you're doing because what you do will affect the game state for everybody. And so while there may be one decision, there are multiple options around that decision to consider. Do you see what I mean?
0: I see what you mean. I guess my concern is that quite often the decisions lack ambiguity. There's quite often the player will be presented with non-decisions, i.e. oh, everybody else has picked red, now I have to pick red. Or, oh, two people have picked orange, one person's picked yellow, well, I should I should probably pick the orange then. Mm. And I know there's slightly more texture than that, but I just feel like the heuristics for making decent decisions in this game are too easily acquired maybe for maybe with a group that has more table talk and therefore collusions um being able to successfully form you know alliances being able to successfully form would make those heuristics weaker absolutely fine i appreciate that there's two ways to look at it right you you could you could look at it as a solvable abstract if you don't talk to the other players you could look at it as a semi-solvable abstract I'll make, I'll, I'll make what I think is the best technical decision each turn. If you only engage with the game that way, you're probably leaving half the game on the table. But I do wonder, you talk about the whole, oh, you know, there's the discussion and the back and forth and all those pieces. Have we played with a group that does that well? It just doesn't reflect my experience. I can see it theoretically being possible and theoretically elevating it, as we saw in, in one of the games we played. But I don't have many groups that would engage with a game like this that way. And that's a problem for 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 me. And again, it's a local value. I'm not again. You know, you shouldn't. You should judge by your group how eager they are to negotiate in rail games and to discuss incentives and to discuss options in an open table talky kind of way, and how they feel about betrayals. Because you know, if you have a thing where someone absolutely loses their rag over inverted commas king making, then they're not going to like this played, in my opinion, in its best way, where betrayals are part of the texture of the game. I've put this in front of a few audiences and the default reaction has been to bounce off it and say, is this even a game? Okay, and the initial kind of enjoyment of the mechanisms, oh, that's neat, the shares as trains, all paying the dividends, that's quite fun and, you know, seeing what your payouts are. And then it devolved, then there's this kind of, for want of a better term, a membrane of, well, is that it? Is this even a game? And those who then invest a bit more time to try and do, for want of a better term, clever things, and to subvert the patterns and meta they've built up previously, get more out of it. Okay, but how willing is your group to push through that membrane of, oh, is that all there is to this game? Is this where the game ends? Now, I'm not saying it's got infinite depths to plumb, for what it's worth. It's not designed for that. It's not 1830, right? But there's definitely more than your first few plays might lead you to believe. But I think if you're practically going to hit those deeper depths, you need to be playing with a degree of table talk. And some groups just don't do table talk, Joe.
1: I tend to play cube rail games with my family, casual gamers and other hobby gamers who aren't going to sit moping about their loss and I think will be resilient to swings in fortune and find the traps and pitfalls and the realisations that they've made mistakes is actually part of that social landscape and something to laugh and joke about. The majority of people I game with will not be sitting around analysing the game step by step anyway. So, well, what do you think?
0: If you finish a game and you've lost or come mid-pack and you don't see how you did anything wrong and you aren't willing to pick through the history of it and try and see what move it was that disadvantaged you or where you made the mistake, I don't think you're going to get a lot out of this.
1: I I don't completely agree because I think you can approach this game and enjoy the ride, as as the title suggests, right? There will be ebbs and flows, ups and downs, reversals in uh, fortune, misfortune. And I think the game can be exciting enough without having to drill down into the depths of these uh, minor decisions.
0: I guess that's an audience thing, right? In the sense that I I can only talk for the audience that's me, right? Uh, And I'm sort of a little bit over games as activities. Like, if I want to play something that's a game as an activity, then I don't want to play something like this, where there's big admin sections where I'm tracking the dividends from various companies and trying to make sure everybody gets paid the right royalties. Oh, no, uh, I forgot to add your commission, blah, 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 all those things. I'll play Time's Up if I want a game as an activity.
1: I think there is a nice balance here, though, of um, being able to think carefully about your moves and adjusting to other people's moves. At the same time, sitting back, drinking a drink, having a laugh, and trying to stab your friend in the eyes.
0: I want I guess, just for some disclosure here, I have played this face-to-face a few times.
1: And you've never stabbed anyone in the eyes.
0: And I've never, indeed, (laughs) (laughs) might have felt like it, but no. (laughs) And what you're saying does reflect itself in the face-to-face experience. However, I don't particularly enjoy online play as a rule, okay. As, as miserable as that makes me sound, I've played this more online than I have face to face. So maybe that kind of beer and pretzels thing that you're saying this can, there's a gap it can fill, maybe I would feel that way more if I'd have played with the physical products more.
1: I guess it completely depends on your group, but I think you could definitely uh, use this game as, you know, the end of the night piece of fun. It doesn't have to be super analytical. Um, looking at this game very coldly if you don't want it to be.
0: Sure, but if you don't... Okay, it's going to sound really awful, but if three of you are at the table playing it super analytically trying to make good moves and then you've got Wild West Williams sitting there to your (laughs) left making wild moves, setting up bonuses for other players and his friend the outlaw um, Oscar um, (laughs) taking advantage of those moves your victory is going to be absolutely gifted and Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Okay. I think you've all got to be going into it with the same expectations and for the same reasons, right? Like, it's all well and good saying you can play this casually. (sighs) Mm, I I don't know. I I, I see your point. I don't think I would be picking it under those circumstances. For what it's worth, I'm still wrestling with how I feel about this game. Like, I I have a good five-player game of it and it elevates itself. You know, reveals itself in ways that are interesting and then I'll have a free player game and go meh. So I'm, yeah, I don't know. And I don't think the way we play these games as you spoke to off-tape, is necessarily realistic. Like, you know, we hit this what, I've, I've hit this 10, 12 times in the past three weeks. No one plays these games that intensely, right? Like, they're designed to be played, picked up once in a while For you to expose yourself to the mechanisms once in a while, to tax yourself in a ride the rails kind of style, maybe once every few weeks, maybe. I don't think they're designed to survive dissection,
1: which um, we will continue to do (laughs) as we proceed through this podcast. Yeah, sure. We're gonna slice this game down with our scalpels because we do enjoy doing that, even if it means leaving the game lying on the table staring at his liver and 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 maybe that's not so desirable to look at but this discussion is interesting and i hope i hope that other people will find this discussion interesting Uh, i don't know the same way you might pack a medical theater and watch an autopsy wow
0: brilliant fantastic so we're giving we're (laughs) giving cold cadavers to our audience wonderful
1: (laughs) we are we are okay
0: Let's circle back. Shall we circle back, much like a well-designed route in Ride the Rails, and then let's continue our talk about player count. Your first player of this was five-player. My first player of this was three-player?
1: Yeah, yeah. As our audience can probably guess, my first impressions were good. I got a really good feel for how alliances just rise out of that simple rule set and how table talk developed throughout the game and how the turn order mechanism creates a, a struggle between the players.
0: I enjoyed aspects of my first experience. I thought the way players are paid commission and the way the companies pay dividends was really interesting. It was a lovely distillation of incentives versus payouts and you know the ability to double down on a given company, differentiating you from somebody who'd gone for a stripe. It was I thought that was very nice and actually the first few times we did the admin for that, it was quite novel and yeah, like I say, it was a positive mechanism. However, at three players, the which share you should pick piece became wholly too calculable. We watched a player in, the, in my first online game of this volunteer to pick blue after the first two players had picked red and they were out with the washing. You know, they, they, they lost so many points they could never catch up. And the problem was... They kept doubling down because it was that whole kind of thrashing around well i'm you sort of learning 18xx if the game isn't benefiting me i need to change the game well blue didn't work out so now i'm going to start yellow by myself and on and on and on we go with them picking um orphan networks the whole time so then again when i was playing the free player with a table of more expert players there just is, there isn't enough portfolios and divergency of interests to map at the three player game for it to hold my interest and that was almost apparent on the first play the other thing i found on the first play was if you fell on the wrong side of an alliance it was very hard to climb back in Mm. really hard
1: in my three player games i have purposely gone out of my way to pick a different company as the other two in the first round because i wanted to see that i wanted to feel this experience myself and i managed through clever play and reaching out to those bonuses and of course in a three-player game you've got eight builds i think it is so you've got a longer arm in terms of your rail building it was it was possible for me to be in the running in that game i i was able to pull myself back from that first mistake um whether i would have been able to if i'd made two mistakes like that is another question.
0: But that, you, talk, you talk about the eight track points, right? Eight build points is absolutely huge and if anything, I think it gives the player too much individual control because it lets them do things like leave a share in the pool for them to pick up you know, a double that otherwise might, or a triple that otherwise might not exist. It gives them that degree of control almost exclusively because they can short build by end points required. With eight build points, you can just absolutely fill a network with passengers. So you don't need to worry about potential passengers for a couple of turns. Because not only are you, have you got eight build points, you've got fewer people moving the passengers. So there's less demand on the passengers that you connect into the network.
1: What I've taken away from the three-player game is that the A phase, the picking the shares, becomes so calculated, there's almost no decision. It's so easy to make an optimal decision because there are fewer variables. And sure. there are fewer players opening up those decisions and alliances in the the B phase, which is the the track building. I found there were opportunities to explore the nuances of the track building, to play around with the networks and the runs with the passengers. But then, uh, when it came to the passenger movement, there was less opportunity to starve your opponents of passengers, for example, which I think becomes a massive thing once you get a few plays under your belt.
0: And the issue is, if, you, if the opportunity for starving your opponent of passengers isn't there, then you do literally remove all the decisions out of the sea phase. You just have to run the longest thing over as many networks that you're involved in as possible phase over.
1: So what I think we're saying here is that two-thirds of the game are essentially removed in a three-player game. It almost feels like the game is playing itself. There's always an optimum move
0: and and the games that expose themselves from negotiation, right? So we'll, we'll reframe this as a negotiation game. Does any negotiation game sing with free? Because actually, with free players, if I say to you, oh, hey Joe, let's turn Jimmy over," it feels very, it feels more
1: bullying. At that count, <laughs> yeah, it is definitely. It, you're picking out a single player, <laughs> yeah, and really trying to crush them. Whereas with more players, there'd be more opportunities to pick on people, maybe more evenly.
0: It certainly softens the psychological impact of yes. of being nobbled. Or it magnifies it if it's a 4-1 split, I guess. But by and large, yeah, I, I found with free that that kind of discussion basically didn't happen. It just devolved down to an abstract pretty quick.
1: Yes. We ran through a few games in which we attempted to make the... Best decision for each player in each position for every action. And obviously this is not some scientific process. But it was interesting and it seemed to us that the game, at five players, had too many decision forks to truly uh, foresee how a game could end. The butterfly effects were just too frequent and too strong.
0: It's too many chains of it depends, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. It, it depends, squared, cubed, whatever, right, to the power of five.
1: Whereas in the three-player game, it was all, like you said, very calculable.
0: I guess the four-player experience probably nestles somewhere in between the two. The way to improve this game, okay, is essentially add a player. You know, <laughs> it's a very simple, very simple prescription. You want this game to improve, add a player. Are you at five yet? No, add a player.
1: Perfect. (laughs) Are you at
0: five yet? Yes, I am. Great. You're about to experience this game in the best possible light.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: Let's try and round out the game then, Joe. In terms of how it ends out, what has been your observation for novice games versus more experienced games?
1: Starting off with new players, as all new players or having a new player involved i think produces a wider gap between the score counters at the end of the game i think that's because with less experience of this game you can make decisions which are de- more detrimental than you imagine they're going to be uh thanks to the the butterfly effect and how everything expands out from them
0: i also think that early players don't know how to control the uh, what seemingly a dominant strategy initially so the whole doubling down tripling down on good networks beginning players because they gravitate towards constructive play in my experience they don't see how you can stamp on the throat of something becoming good in the first place and Mm. that tends to lead to the bigger scores because the people who end up in the better alliances their lead tends to magnify and magnify and magnify and i think with beginner players unless they are a particularly sociable jolly bunch who treat every game they ever play like a social game, this presents itself in terms of the components and the aesthetic and the setting as an abstract game about laying track and moving passages and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas actually, as we discussed throughout the podcast, you need to talk. And not only do you need to talk, you need to understand the value of what you're offering or the value of the proposition being made to you Beginning players just don't have that context. So you tend to have quite wide score spreads as a result.
1: Yeah, I think so. And those bonuses, as mentioned, are traps. And I've seen players just hand them out to other players. I think also you want to have some agency in the game and the agency you might feel immediately is building railroads. I don't know, there's something more exciting initially in having that power but i've seen a game which you've won in which actually oh
0: you're making me blush joe
1: (laughs) well it was when we were all novices and allowed it to happen we allowed craig to suck up great shares he didn't have much building potential but he just put his feet up and essentially watched the money roll in
0: well if you think about that particular game if in that instance of the game you and the other players had made it so i never had a passenger to deliver rather than doing the old pac-man trying to eat as many pills as possible and connecting everywhere you'd f- found my result to be very differently indeed right mm-hmm. that's just that's too much to be able to cold read on your first play i think unless you yeah, listen to this podcast yeah. then you'll
1: know. <laughs> yeah. we would we would have completely ruined the game for you we we're gussing it to its uh um, to his bones and his intestines on that uh, that table we uh, discussed earlier.
0: All I'll say is, Joe, once you've seen your wife's intestines, um, there's there's no
1: going back. <laughs> that story another time. Um, so, um, <laughs> oh my God, I didn't realise that was an actual story. Uh, that's that. That's an actual story, Joe. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but I think so, so. What happens to those scores when
0: you've played a few more times with people that don't talk about their wife's intestines? <laughs>
1: yeah because if i was in the same room as someone talking about seeing their own uh wives i'd probably never want to play them with them again um so what happens with more ex- experienced play um scores get tighter and tighter extremely tight the first three positions are within one point of each other or you might have a draw for second they're that close incredibly close and you may have someone who who trails behind but I've seen even the trailing player able to scoop themselves up and place themselves within three or four points. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, now what, what does that say about the game? Does it say that you're in for an exciting conclusion? Uh, does it say that the winner isn't decided until that last couple of rounds? Or does it say that this game is so incredibly balanced that the decisions the optimal decisions that you think you're making all even out and actually maybe your decisions don't matter when they're at that level
0: you mean the point salad effect everything i do is worth two victory points or there's about what does it really matter I don't think it's that. If the novice players can create massive spreads, then it tells you the game is won or lost in the mistakes. And the mistakes are in part dictated by what other players choose to do with the shares they pick up and thereby the build points they gift to the companies they're involved in. Or more point, the build points they potentially gift to the companies they're involved in. I don't think that's the issue. I can I, I can get that being a question when you when you see the, the scores being that mm-hmm. tight every time, but the possibility of someone being able to turn over other players makes me feel that's not the issue. Because mm-hmm. if that was the, if it was perfectly balanced, then in the sense of a, the point salad effect, then novice players would be doing it to each other too. And also, mm-hmm. if that was the case, when you introduce a novice player to an um, in inverted commas an expert table, they wouldn't have the ability to, for want of a better term, adjust the balance and award winners uh, to players that easily, would they? I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's too balanced.
1: What do you think in terms of the value of second, third place in this game? Because quite often I'll play my train game and we're all competing for first place. It's the winner and nothing. But in this game, I've got a feeling that actually playing for second or third place after a detrimental mistake still feels rewarding.
0: Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I think if you come into it with the... 18xx or some 18xx um, groups anyway not all I know there's I say there's differences of opinion on this but if you come into it with the view that it's winner or you're the first loser amongst losers then I think you're missing the opportunity to enjoy the hour more fully if you're in one of the rear positions because like we said it is if as long as you're not too far from it things can change massively with the ability to just choke one delivery for a person, okay? And you can pull yourself right back in it. And a close second in this does feel exciting. Um, Sure, if you're ground into dust and you're right at the back and you think you're never going to catch up, that's tough. But I guess that's the flip side of those easily picked up heuristics for making at least, if not perfect decisions, sensible decisions. You shouldn't have to suffer too many games like that before you're able to play with the more um, experienced players on a reasonably even footing. Right, Joe, so I've, I've basically had enough at this point. So let's finalise our thoughts then with a comparison of the first in the Iron Rail series, Irish Gauge, to the second, Ride the Rails. I want to be clear, because we have an in-the-can-but-probably-not-to-be-released tape of Irish Gauge discussion, I played Irish Gauge about this extensively before we chatted about it. I have more interest in playing this than I do Irish Gauge after an equivalent number of plays. Although I think Irish Gage probably lands better with my Euro gaming group because the atomic nature of the actions, you do a thing, you've got complete agency over your turn on what you do, and to a certain extent, the quality of your decision isn't necessarily dictated by what they choose to do, or certainly not as overtly anyway.
1: Can I, can I say something? or um, Yeah, of course yeah. please please. I do. didn't know if you were launching into a monologue. Or or welcoming my input or not.
0: No, no, I was. But if you've got something good to say, (laughs) if you've got something good to say, Joe, crack on.
1: I will disrupt the monologue then. The actions don't need to follow a set order. And it creates um, a rhythm that's player determined. And a cadence that's often unpredictable.
0: The fact that this has a set schedule like an 18xx, an ABC phase, and it's going to all happen in a set order, lends itself to a negotiating game-type view because, ah, oh, it's the A phase, we talk about this in the A phase. Ah, oh, it's the B phase, we talk about these kind of interests in the C- in this phase. It's the C phase, we talk about nothing in the C phase. But Well, you
1: talk about nothing in the C stage.
0: I'm being somewhat facetious, Joe. If people have learned by now listening to this podcast not to take me absolutely literally. <laughs> OK,
1: I'll let you continue. Um, I'm always talking through that C stage.
0: <laughs> no one's listening, Joe. Um, <laughs> But Irish Gage is very much, like you say, it's a roller coaster and the, and the ride will change every time. I, I,
1: can I butt in again? Is that allowed?
0: Yes, of course <laughs> it is.
1: I argue that while the order of the player actions will vary, I think there's a limit in the game system to create variability from game to game.
0: This is great because you're saving me from having to say this stuff. This is, this is fantastic. I agree. I agree. It's, It is, okay, it's got the potential to be a roller coaster, but in real terms, it tends to devolve down to the same kind of flows. Or if there are different flows, the outcomes are broadly similar anyway, so what did it matter? The auction, for me, loses its mystery pretty quickly once all players have got to a similar level of skill in valuing the shares. And quite often in Irish Gauge, you can know you're out of it halfway through. You can go halfway through. I am definitely dead. There is no way for me to claw this back. And we have a very high likelihood that Sven is the winner, and then we get two-thirds in, and we might as well put it away. Advantage is leveraged to more advantage. With this, there's a degree of catch-up in that the turn order adjustments can confer different types of advantages, and maybe you want to play to be in a certain seat. Mm. With Irish Gauge, once you're poor and someone else is rich, they're going to be able to more likely access face-value shares than you are. I think Irish Gauge for me lands better with players that like the perception of higher individual agency. When you play Ride the Rails, you have to accept the fact that you do not have unique agency over your fortunes. The quality of the decision you made will in part be dictated by the decisions other people make after you. However, if we try and play Ride the Rails with fewer players and increase the agency, then it it very rapidly becomes something I would rather that I would preference Irish Gauge above. So for me, mm-hmm. it's a player count function. I would prefer to play Irish Gauge at a lower player count, but on the flip side, I think if I was to judge them both for their best experiences, you know, Irish Gauge at its best count and Ride the Rails at its best count, I would prefer to be playing Ride the Rails as it stands.
1: Can I um, can I um share with you something, Craig? That um... oh,
0: boom, Tish. Can I share something? Carry on.
1: <laughs> I um, as as hinted at, I recorded a whole episode on Irish gauge was, a, which was effectively thrown in the bin. So I decided to take some ideas and actually put it into some writing. Could I take no. you? No, no, <laughs> the, the,
0: the, the, they've, been, they've been thrown in the bin, Joe, and that was for a bloody good reason. No one wants to hear this rubbish. So you could just, you can screw that up and put it in the round filing cabinet. Look, of course this, you can, Joe. I, of
1: course you can crack this, on. Mate. This is like poetry, honestly. Listen to this. So when playing Irish gauge, I imagine we're all inside the belly of an old steam locomotive, wrenching on its levers, watching its pressure dials, waiting just for the right moment to shovel more coal into the furnace. But it feels to me as if the players are struggling more with the system itself, trying to edge ahead on the probability payouts, than gaming the players around the table. And while it feels exciting to be driving this steam locomotive for its first few runs, I soon felt as though Irish gauge is limited by the machinery itself. We may be able to choose when we twist the valves and open the throttle, but its auctions soon become calculable gauges to bid within and the track play offers little branching from game to game. In Irish Gage, once the engine reaches halfway to its destination, there are no tools in the driver's cab to dramatically reverse player's fortune, whether that's upending the leader or pulling yourself back from behind. There seems little freedom to switch tracks to send the game to a different end. (laughs) What do you think of that?
0: I'm scared. I'm actually scared. I can't work out if I'm on a recording with Ben Maddox or if Dan Farot has um, infiltrated your house to write your script for you. it's. it's...
1: I've got an, a similar paragraph for Ride the Rails, which...
0: Oh, oh my God, this podcast can't survive that, but <laughs> since you've written it, just just don't do it again,
1: John. <laughs> no, no, no. This is a one-off, but only because I, I really wanted to put my thoughts and feelings about these games side by side, because they do line up on the shelf together as part of the same series. And I kind of wanted to capture what I thought and what I felt about it in a concise, metaphorical way. Can I launch into another poetic um, paragraph? No,
0: go on, do it, do it. Get your words worth bit out now, Jack.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Ride the Rails has a procedural structure akin to a railway timetable. It allows very little freedom in terms of an action a player must choose, But the simple system quickly fades into the background, like a pre-recorded platform announcement. If Irish Gage places you in a battle over the controls in the driver's cab, Ride the Rails positions you as a furious passenger, finding a space in the crowded station car park distracting or nudging others to get to the front of the queue for the ticket booth and elbowing your way down the aisle to find the final empty seat on the carriage. And that doesn't take into account the moments of forced collusion and ultimate betrayal. Indeed, the game forces you to share a seat in your car on the way to the station. Together you barge to the front of the platform, but as one of you reaches to lift a suitcase from the platform trolley, the other will slam the carriage door shut and lift the middle finger through the window. Lovely. (laughs) Lovely. I I feel that that may be quite harshly cut when we come to the editing process.
0: I hope it stays in for one, but there you go. (laughs) So, thanks for that, Joe. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, play the game in terms of research and to spend the time recording with me on the game. Like I say, it's it's always great to have you on the show. Uh, You lend a level of research and analysis that is curiously absent otherwise
1: I interpreted from what you just said that I bring to the show uh, a kind of analytical thought that I don't normally show uh, in other areas of my life you can read that as you like really
0: (laughs) You, you you can read that as you like on that note Thank you for joining us today. You'll hear the normal spiel about uh, how you can get in touch with us afterwards. Please feel free to shout at us in the usual places about how we've placed our locomotives in the wrong hexagons. So it is a a goodbye from me. And a goodbye from me. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, you can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. You can engage with us via pictures using Instagram, the underscore train underscore rush. You can contact us on Facebook, search for The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com. If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Thank you for listening.